0: We are um, in week three of a four-week series on the topic of living debt-free, living debt-free. Now, in this series, um, we've been talking about that it's not really, it's not a money series. It sounds like it could be a money series, but it's not about money. It's about those emotional freedoms you want to find and those relational debts we often have. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the I owe you mentality. I owe you. I've done something wrong to somebody, and I feel like I owe them. And we said that the secret to finding freedom in there is found in confession. Confession. Last week, we talked about when people have wronged us, and we feel that you owe me. You owe me. And in that kind of world, the secret to finding freedom is in forgiveness. Today, we're going to talk about a different direction. We're shifting gears a bit. But it all falls under the idea of living debt-free and finding emotional freedom. Today we're going to talk about the idea of I owe me. I owe me. What does that mean? I owe me is when I'm saying, well, you know, um, it's time to look out for rule number one. Hey, and I've worked hard and I, I owe it to myself. And this, the mentality that creeps in through a word we call Greed. I owe me. Greed. Now, there's good good news for us all today. The last two Sundays, you might have felt like those topics applied to you. Perhaps you've wronged somebody and you feel, I owe them, I owe you. And so that one felt like it applied to you. And maybe last week you felt hurt by somebody, so you feel like someone owes you. You owe me. So that applied to you because, you know, those are personal. The good news is this one probably won't apply to you because who's greedy anyhow, right? This is not something that we struggle with, right? This, uh, this today is um, probably for the other guy. This message is for the other Gail. Because here's the cool thing about my life. I have, n- all my years of ministry, I've never met a greedy person, ever. Just ask them, nobody. Now, I've met some careful people, right, some responsible people. I've never met, never met a greedy person. So this is for the other guy or for the other gal. The last two weeks are for you. You can sit back and hope that they can hear the message, right? Because we're off the hook today, aren't we? This is a hard one to spot in our lives. This is hard to spot because we don't identify this way. We don't say, well, you know, I'm just a greedy person. So it's easy. We, we put words around this idea that make us feel like it's better than it is. We spin this one. And what I want to encourage you today is to think that maybe there's more to it. Or it's just for the other guy or the other gal. Either way, hang with me before it's over. and Maybe God will speak to our hearts about what we can do. It's interesting because Jesus warned very clearly against greed. In Luke 12 and verse 15, Jesus said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. And that's an interesting statement right there. Guard against every kind of greed. Not just guard against greed, because greed has different forms. So guard against every kind of greed. Because greed can be a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You can be rich person greedy. You can be poor person greedy. You can be greedy in, in hoarding. Well, I'm sorry, we no know hoards, we save. Uh, we can be greedy in, in, in spending. No, we don't spend, we treat ourselves. But uh, we can be greedy in a lot of ways. Greed can look like a lot of forms, but but God says Jesus says, beware, guard against every kind of greed. And he makes a statement that's so powerful. He says, life is not measured by how much you own. That should be on a bumper sticker. That's really good. Life is not measured by how much you own. People try to do that, but it doesn't work very well. And it's a dangerous game because there's always someone with more, so it's not fair or less, so I'm better. But life is not measured by how much you own. So greed. Greed. Well, if no one is greedy or thinks they're greedy or no one wants to be greedy, the question is, how does it even happen in the first place? And I want to suggest that the reason it happens might begin with the word fear. That fear comes in. That fear gets a hold of us. That it's the driving force behind greed. Because we're afraid, what if I can't make it? What if it's not enough? What if something happens? What if, what if, what if? And fear fuels greed. Because I got... Needs and I'm I'm concerned and and I'm scared and it happens so easily. We fear. We fear that God can't or won't take care of us. Or more specifically, we're afraid that God won't take care of us to our standard or expectation or preferred level. That's that's the real issue, right? Because we believe God might take care of us, but then we look at people in underdeveloped nations, and I've traveled across the world and I've seen places where people live and they have a shelter technically, but it doesn't look very secure. leak-proof, and they have a dirt floor, and it's, it's they live living in comparative squalor without as much stuff as we have. And I guess they're cared for. I guess they eat and live indoors. But we're like, I don't want God to meet my needs and care for me on that level. I want God to care for me on the level that I want to be cared for, and we're afraid that he won't do that. And because he won't do that, then we have to fear that we need to look out for ourselves in some way. And Paul makes a statement, by the way, the Apostle Paul was in prison in the city of Philippi, did nothing wrong, was in prison for preaching the gospel, and in the middle of a a very horrible situation as a prisoner, uh, later on he was imprisoned in Rome writing back to Philippi, so this was a later, a different prison he writes from, to the place he was first imprisoned at. And Paul from prison writes a letter and he says to the people, a lot of things, he says that he's learned to be content in whatever state he was in, he's learned that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. But one thing Paul said in Philippians 4.19 was, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. That God will supply our needs. He does that. And we can trust in him to do that because he does. But that's the word there is needs. That's the word that's hard to define sometimes. Because there's a lot of things that I didn't need until I could afford them and maybe I shouldn't have. But I couldn't, It was impossible before, but now that I can make it happen, I need it now. Needs are a funny term. Oftentimes it's not need, it's greed. In fact, greed often disguises itself as need. Greed disguises itself as need. The problem with this mentality is it's never enough. It's never enough. There's never enough to cover all of the possible what-ifs of life. You say, well, if I just had a little bit more, I, I got these what-ifs, and so just a little bit more, and it will solve those what-if problems. But I promise you that if you had a little bit more, there's brand new what-if problems waiting for you there. And if you've got a little bit more than that, there's brand new what-if problems. Did you know, I, I, heard, I heard a man t- telling the story about how he meets with a lot of very, extremely wealthy people because of where he lives in the country and where he ministers. And he meets with a lot of very wealthy people. And he talks about sitting across the, from meals from people or in meetings with people who are, like, ridiculous wealthy. And they will they worry about it. They have what-ifs too. Like, I mean, it's like, how could you ever have in that level of wealth? But they're like, what if the government takes it all? Or what if everything the whole thing crashes? Or what if, what if? There's always another what-if. There's always something more. And we, we know that, we should know this. But we think that it won't be the case for us. So greed disguises itself as need, but there'll never be enough to not need more. And because of that, we need to acquire more. And it feeds our fear. Here's the worst part. Greedy people are rarely at peace with others in their lives, and they're never at peace with themselves. That's why this is so important today. It's so important because people who struggle with greed are not at peace inside with them. Selves and not with anybody else. And the marriage takes a toll, and the pa- kids take a toll, the parents take a toll, and the family, friends, everything suffers because it is a bondage, a, a pursuit that will never be satisfied, an appetite that will never be satiated. Long-term relationships get eroded over short-term stuff. And its short-term. Short-term. So greed disguises itself as need, but greed also, greed disguises itself as a virtue. Like, that's why no one's greedy. I've never met a greedy person. We're like, oh, Arlen, you understand, I'm a saver. <laughs> I'm a planner. That's me. I'm a planner. I'm a good parent who wants my, thinking of my future generations. Okay? By the way, I just want to say this. This is not my sermon, but it just ought to be said um, the things people do for the future generations. When it comes to wealth, that can ruin. Th- there are entire organizations, legacy organizations in this world that you and I don't know a thing about because we're not that rich. But they're out there who, their whole job is to manage the mess of generational wealth. The problems the kids have, the utter depravity, the legal trouble they get into, the r- rehab trouble, all the mess that comes from, I mean, it's, it's a whole business. It's a business to be in. And, and we think, well, I just got to take care. I got to help them. But, but sometimes, we have, are we really helping? You know, Michelle and I discussed this sometimes. We both grew up poor. I mean, literal poor. We were poor. We could tell stories. I mean, both of us could tell stories that are, I don't have time in this message to reminisce on that trail. But um, the truth is, is that it, was, it didn't hurt us, right? It didn't ruin us. Actually, if anything, it helped us to be content with the simple things of life. To be able to not be tied down to needing so much, to be OK, maybe the reason God doesn't give some of us incredible wealth is because he doesn't want to ruin your kids. He loves you too much. He loves your kids too much. Because that's not the answer. But greed disguises itself as a virtue. it's what it does. So I want to look at a Bible story together for a while. And then after the Bible story, I'm going to give you four questions at the end. I want you to write these questions down. And I want you to take them home with you and think about them in your meditation time. So let's look at uh, those questions at the end. First of all, a Bible story. It's found in Luke chapter 12, if you want to turn there. And we will, before we get into it, let me just give you the backstory. Jesus is in the middle of teaching a crowd of people. And right as he's teaching, apparently at least somebody's not paying attention to a word he's saying. He's talking about heaven and, and, and the greater causes of life and, and relationship with God. And apparently someone is zoned out And because they interrupt him with an off-the-wall question. And so when I read that happening to Jesus, I feel better as a pastor because I don't know how many times I'm preaching to people in my 22 years, and they're like doing their grocery list or checking their Facebook likes or, you know, doing something else, you know, like, okay, are, are you with me? So, I mean, if it happened to Jesus, I feel a little bit better too. So Jesus is teaching. He's in the middle of a message, talking to a crowd of people, and right in the middle of his conversation, he is interrupted. Luke 12, verse 13, that start the story there. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher! Please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Like, what? Like, he's right in the middle of a talk, you know. It's like, uh, time out. Uh, Jesus, I don't know what you were saying. Blah, 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 something. Faith, I don't know. But hey, I've been thinking about something else that's way more important than whatever you're blabbering about. Tell, you, look, you're a teacher. You, people, obviously, people respect you and like you. Tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Dad just died. I want my portion. Like, I'm picturing the reaction like jesus is like really i mean was this guy's brother in the crowd he's like oh good he's here hey jesus or did he show up just to make sure because his brother was going to be there to try and cause a, a scene it's insane what an insane interruption to jesus teaching how crazy is this by the way i've been my dad is a pastor also and him and I talk sometimes about the fact that both of us have done a lot of funerals through the years. In fact, I haven't done a lot of funerals in the church because we've been, we've been very blessed in my 22 years of not having a lot of, of that so far. Not going to thank the Lord, pray whatever it is. It's been good. But, but the, the, the funeral homes in the town sometimes call me We'll say, hey, can you do a service for a family that doesn't have a pastor? And I've done a lot of funerals for people in the community who didn't have a pastor and they needed a service. And my dad has two through the years. So I've got two plus decades of this, and he's got decades of this. So we can tell stories. And I'm going to tell you, it's scary some of the stories we'll get at funerals of people fighting over the family stuff. My dad's best story was when he was at a funeral one time, and he's, it usually happens at the end of a service. People will walk past the casket and leave. And then the last ones are the immediate family, the kids or whoever, walk up to the front and take a moment over the body of their loved one. And they have the final moment. The director's in the room, the pastor's in the room, in case they need them. Then the family leaves, and then they close the casket, and they lower it. It's a whole scene. And so the, the people have left. The family comes up to the front. The only people in the room now are the funeral director, my dad, and these four or five kids standing in front of dad's body before they close it. And while they're standing there for quiet for just a moment, all of a sudden they broke out in a fight over who gets more of his money. And dad said he, he told me, because we talk about these kind of things, he says he walked up to them and said, hey, do you mind? Like his body's right here. Is this really the time and place to do this? What's wrong with you? And one of them yelled and said, oh, listen to you. Uh, we, we, this is none of your business. You know what, we're not paying you for doing this funeral. Get out of here. And dad's like, I don't want, is this what this is about? I don't want your lousy money. This is horrible. And he walked out. But the truth is, is that's, that's a sad story to me. How greedy can we be? That's Jesus right here. He's like teaching crowds of people. And all of a sudden, uh, yeah, hey, uh, more important than that. Hey, Jesus, stop. Shh, quiet. We've heard enough. Tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus says this in verse 14. Jesus replied, friend, that's an interesting word, By the way, that's a good word. Maybe he's being sarcastic, but I don't think so. See, what happens with you and me is when we see people who are messed up, people who are thinking wrong, we think of them as enemies. We think of them as bad. Jesus looked at people and said, you could be somebody I care for who is on a bad place right now. You're not thinking well right now. You're not where you ought to be, but I'm still looking at you with compassion. Jesus said, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Jesus like, that's not what I'm here for. Who cares? Like who gets your money? Who cares? It's temporary anyhow. Like you realize most people today who get a big inheritance or windfall are bankrupted in a number of years. That's just the percentages. That's how it works. And some who keep it aren't always happy. That's what the therapist and the other things are for. And he's like, who cares? Jesus says, who made me a judge over that? I'm not, I'm not, I don't care about that. That's temporary, and you're gonna leave it all behind anyhow. Jesus is like, listen, let your brother have it all. I don't care. And then verse 15, we read this earlier. Jesus said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. So from here, Jesus is going to tell them a story. He decides that he's changing sermons midstream because of some comment from the audience. Time to change sermons. So Jesus tells a story. verse Verse 16. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. So picture this guy. He's a very wealthy man. He, he happens to have a good piece of land. Farmers know sometimes the land isn't always as good everywhere as it is somewhere else or you don't always know what you're going to get from year to year. This man was blessed. His, his land was fertile. His, he produced fine crops and it has made him rich. He is living with privilege. Verse 17, he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room For all my crops. That's a good problem to have, isn't it? Like, I don't have enough room for all of my crops. What am I gonna do with this problem of mine? Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And I'll get a bigger house and I'll rent a big storage unit off site uh, for all my stuff. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat. And other goods, right? I just need more space. That's what I need. And then I'll have enough room. Because the secret, I have so, I'm so privileged and so blessed. What I need is not to think about what to do with this for anybody else around me who's not as blessed or privileged as me. What I need to think about is, here's my solution. I need more space. I need to buy bigger storehouses. That's the answer for my life. And then he says, And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, My friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat and drink and be merry. Now we look at that, look at that story together. You and I look at that story. And we would call that a responsible guy. Right? We would probably have, it, if we knew this person in real life, we'd have a mixture of emotions. We'd be both happy for him and hate him at the same time. We're like, that's so cool, happy for you, can't stand you either, good for you, yay, ooh, grr. you know? But we say, hey, this guy here, I mean, he's done well for himself, he's responsible, this is, this is the way it should be done, bravo, bravo to you, sir. But Jesus throws in a plot twist. Verse 20, But God said to him, You fool. That seems kind of harsh. Here's why. You will die this very night. You didn't know it, but this was your time. You didn't know it, but something was going to happen. You didn't know what was coming, because you couldn't know. But this is the last night. That's what happens. That's what happens to us. It's interesting when you read, and of course when people are famous or extremely wealthy in culture, They usually make the news when something happens to them. It's amazing how you'll read that people who have enough money to keep arms, to keep death at arm's length longer than anybody else, it still catches to them at some point. At some point, that rich, powerful, famous, connected person still has, makes the headlines. It happens. And Jesus says, This is your time, sir. And he asks the question, God asks him the question, then who will get everything? You worked for? And that's the big question. Because here's the thought I want you to think about right now. Eventually, everything we claim to own will be owned by someone else. That's the thought to have, isn't it? I'm not, this is full of good news today. Everything we claim to own will eventually be owned by someone else. It could be your wife and her new husband. your husband and his new wife. Some other fools out there. Say, well, no, no not, not fools, my kids. Yes, those fools. Who, if, they don't, if it doesn't ruin them, they'll probably squander it and someone else will t- take advantage and, and the money will get spent in ways to be other people's pockets that way that you've guarded from and you've been careful with all that time. And it will just kind of go, in the end, it's going to be on somebody else. Everything we've owned or claim to own will be owned by someone else eventually. And Jesus says to him, verse 21, and then Jesus says to his audience, yes, a person is a fool. To store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. In other words, Jesus says, if you store up earthly wealth for a life that is here today and gone tomorrow, and and we know as we get older, it goes by so fast, and you live here, but you forget about eternity. You're rich here, but you're not rich in heaven. You're rich here, but you don't have a relationship with God. You've done well earthly-wise, but not spiritually-wise. It's a wrong choice. It's a bad decision. It's a bad bad trade. No matter how successful people think you are and how impressed they are with how you've done for yourself. Interesting. And when he says this idea of earthly wealth versus wealth with God, what he's saying is this. He's saying God lives in a different economy. God's economy is saying, take what you have now and help others. Almost all, this is important, almost all the stories in the Bible about God, uh, uh, people rich and dying in parables that Jesus tells. There's, Luke 16's got a very powerful pointed one about the afterlife, and there's other ones. It's almost always dealing with people who lived wealthy while others lived in poverty, but after they died, the script flipped. Because we think it's all right here, it's all about now. If I'm close to God, if I have faith in God and I follow him, because faith will cause me to follow him, he'll show me that that relationship with him will cause me to live beyond what's about earthly wealth. It's about others. It's the opposite of greed. In fact, I'm going to give you a definition of greed that we use often. If you've been around here for years, there's a definition of greed that we've used many times before, and I want you to hear it over and over again. There's a lot of definitions or phrases that we use at Lighthouse, through the years, and I hope they stick in our DNA. I hope they get down into our lives. And this is one of those statements I want you to have, think about this deeper than just today. I didn't create it, it's not original to me, but I think it's so good that we passed it on to you. And, and it goes like this. Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. The assumption that it's all for my consumption. That Everything that comes my way is for me. I assume that it's all there for me to consume. That's what everything that comes my way. Just, that's what it's there for. It's why God gave it to me. Didn't give you much? Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's not my problem. This is all for me. The assumption that it's all for my consumption is the definition, the epitome of a greed mentality. If everything that comes into my life is for me alone, and I do know how rich or poor I am, I ought to ask myself, am I struggling with greed? Mignone McLaughlin wrote a book called The Second Neurotics Notebook. He made a statement that goes with a story that Jesus just told. He said, Your money or your life, we know what to do when a burglar makes this demand of us, but not when God does. We gotta ask ourselves to think: is that my assumption that it's all for my consumption, or is there something more here? So in the story that we're reading, Jesus turns away from the crowd and begins to talk to his disciples. Like he's been talking to the crowd, but they weren't listening anyhow because someone had a weird question. So he just tell, he, he tells them a story, and then Jesus turns and he talks to his disciples, his everyday followers, the 12 that went with him everywhere he went. He talks to them instead. Look at the next verse, verse 22. Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. It's like Jesus pauses and says to his close guys, guys, You hear me all the time tell you this. See what just happened here? That's why I keep telling you. That's why I tell you, don't worry about everyday life. Because of that right there. That's why I tell you, don't worry. Whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. He says, for life is more than food. And your body is more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. For God feeds them, and you are far more valuable to him than any birds. And then he makes a question that some of us who struggle with worry, which leads to fear, which is degree, which leads to all sorts of bad things. We struggle with worry. We ought to write this next question down and put it as a screen, shot, a screen for our phone or tape it to our steering wheel or our refrigerator or someplace where we'll see it. He asks the question that we all ought to remember. He says, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? The answer is no, they can't. They're probably taking moments off of your life. They can deteriorate your health. They can't add anything. No. And then he says this, this is so good. And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, well, that's not a little thing to me. If worry can accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use in worrying over bigger things? Hmm, interesting. Verse 27, Look at the lilies, how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the flowers that are here today... And thrown into the fire tomorrow, He will certainly care for you. Flowers live such a short life, but he, they don't worry. God just adorns them. And God says, Look, your life is short too in the grand scheme of things, but God will care for you. God will care for you. Why do you have so little faith? You see, the more we have, the more we worry over. I said this earlier. People who have an incredible wealth, legacy wealth out there, they, you think if you had the, half the money they have or a tenth of the money they have, you'd have no more worries. They have a ton of wealth and they're worried. Because the more you have, the more you worry. This is, listen, this is a fact. The more you have, the more you worry. That's just the way it is. In fact, this is one reason why I'm a big fan of minimalism. I know you've heard me beat the drum of minimalism many times before. But the thing is this. If you have more, st- credit, debt for more things brings worry. Uh, lifestyle where there's no margin because you live full. You've got to worry that if you lose your job, you can't sustain your livelihood and your lifestyle. Bigger house is more house to insure, pay for, taxes on, own, maintain, and continue paying for. More things, more things. The simpler your, your, your life is, a simpler, the less you have. I know that we don't want to be the guy that lives in, out of two duffel bags and can travel to a new state every, or a new country every two months because he's so free from possessions. That seems radical to us. But there's a little more peace and freedom with having less than there is in having so much stuff. Because the more you have, the more you worry. The more you have, the more you worry. It's just how it is. Now, the opposite of worry is peace. And one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, when you become a believer, the Spirit of God moves inside of you and you should be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is peace. But we can't find peace when we're filled with worry and anxiety and greed disguised as need. And, and the thing is, is that sometimes we, we have more and when we, because we make a little bit more, we, we broaden our needs. So when we were first married, we didn't make much money, but we spent it all. Then you get a little bit more money So then all of a sudden, well, now I need this, and then you make more money. And the problem is we don't save much margin in our lives. But the problem, no matter how much a person makes, if you leave yourselves no margin, there'll be no peace of mind. And this is why, this is why, this is why greed is just as much about spending as it is about saving. Like the savers hate the spenders, the spenders hate the savers. They're the same person opposite sides of the same coin. Like, it doesn't matter if you're Ebenezer Scrooge with big stacks of coins way high and woo, look at all my money. Or if you're the person that says, look at what's mine, spend, spend, spend for more stuff, 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 for me, me, me. It's all, they're the same same person. Just different functions that think their ways better. But it's, in both of those stories, you know what that is about? It's all about me. It's all about me. Protect my stuff. Enjoy my stuff. Me. The assumption That is all for my consumption. And Jesus said, I want you to think differently. Look at verse 29. Keep reading the story here. And don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink, don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. Wow, that's a statement. People who don't believe there's a God or they don't think that it does exist or whatever, they just don't believe, they're just living for this life and it's a dog-eat-dog it's dog survival of the fittest, claw and scratch to get ahead, make my short little life as good as it can be before I'm gone. But but if you're an unbeliever, that's the kind of thoughts that dominate you. But if you have faith in God and you believe that, that He is there and that He cares and that He's provided eternity for us and that He has a plan and a purpose for your existence here, we shouldn't think like unbelievers. We should think like people of faith and not be dominated by worry over stuff. Because our Father that we believe we, and we say we have faith in, He knows what we need. Verse 31, seek the kingdom of God above all else. In other words, seek it first, first in priority. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. And then he gets really practical in the next couple of verses. Like, sometimes you like it when Jesus or anyone who's speaking from the Bible is kind of vague, so you can kind of, you know, not make it apply to put the jelly on the bottom shelf. Jesus gets really practical right now, so get ready for it. Verse 33, he says, Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven, and the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Now, what he's saying is a mouthful. He's saying, I want you to, to look at what you have and not assume it's all for you to consume. I want you to use it to help those in need. And, and, and what, you're, what we do is we say, no, i got to invest into my future. And look, I'm, I'm for, by the way, if I didn't say this earlier, let me say this. I'm, I'm not knocking saving or planning, all those good other words. Those are good words. Saving is good. Planning is good. The problem is, is that sometimes it moves to greed, but we disguise it as still planning and saving. We move it to a step further and say, well, this is still part of the, the good things like saving and planning, which is fine. But the question is, are we disguising what's not fine under those terms that are, are good? And so, in the middle of your being responsible with your money, are you doing anything for those in need or are you assuming that it's all for you to consume? And he says, give to those in need. And he says, that will store treasure in heaven because I can spend my life, and you can spend your life thinking of the best investment strategy in the world. Get involved in your 401k, and the employers match a certain part of your IRA, and do you have some invested in the stock market or mutual funds or ETFs or cryptocurrencies these days, right? Whatever you invest into, it's all awesome. But here's the problem. Things happen, crashes take place. God, Jesus says, In heaven, the persons of heaven don't go old, get old and you don't get holes in the pockets. <laughs> the dollar doesn't depreciate and inflation doesn't happen. Just be real. He says, Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. In other words, Jesus says, have a better investment strategy than just a short life here where bizarre things can happen that change the whole landscape anyhow. The best investment strategy is for eternity, is forever. And it's taking the life God's given you and saying, how can I help those in need And by helping those in need, as we often say, point them to God and his love for them and do something spiritual and helpful to others with what God has given me. Or do I live with the assumption that, no, it's all for my consumption? So, he says in verse 34, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Isn't that true? Wherever your treasure is, if your treasure's in your collection of favorite comics or movies or it's in your favorite hobby or games or your house or your car you're rebuilding or whatever, that's where your heart, that's where your passion, that's, where you, that's what you talk about, that's, what, that's everything. If, if your treasure is in heaven, if you're, if you're investing into king, other, serving God and helping others and being generous and thinking of the kingdom of God, that's where your heart will be. That's where your desires will be. It follows your treasure every single time. See, the secret, I said a couple weeks ago, the secret to I owe you is confession. The secret to you owe me is forgiveness. Today, the secret to I owe me, or greed, the secret is generosity. Generosity is the part that takes our treasure and puts us in a place where it helps our heart, the desires of our heart, heals our heart, and makes it whole. Generosity is the secret today. Please hear hear this statement. A greedy person is someone who saves carefully or spends carelessly, but gives sparingly. They save carefully or they spend carelessly, but they give sparingly. And that's the problem. That's the struggle we have. And you say, well, I don't feel greedy. But greed is not a feeling. Greed is not a feeling. It's a refusal to act. Right? It's, it's a refusal to act. It doesn't matter how you feel. You can feel warm and fuzzy, but it's a refusal to act. It makes us greedy. Likewise, generosity is not evidenced by how you feel, but by what you do. So, for example, someone comes in your path life and they have, they have needs, and you don't have everything you want or could possibly need, and your what-ifs aren't all figured out for the future, but you have you're better off than they are, and they have a need, and you're like, Oh, man, I can't help them because I need to worry about this in my life, and what if that? So you don't help them, but you feel bad for them. So you're like, see, I'm a, I've got a good heart. I felt bad for them. That doesn't do anything if you don't help them. Likewise, you can sit there and say, oh, man, I don't want to help them. And you can help them anyhow because you need to, but you feel don't like it. Well, I didn't feel very generous. It matter. You were. It's not how you feel. It's what you do. Don't confuse those two things. Feeling and doing are two different things. It's funny because there's a verse in Corinthians where uh, Paul the apostle said to the church that God loves a cheerful giver. And I grew up in church culture where I saw Christians who find their way to wrestle out by saying, in other words, if I don't give cheerfully, I don't have to give. (laughs) It's like, what? What's that in the verse? You know, like, what what does that mean? In other words, God says, I want you to give, but also learn to do it cheerfully. You know, because no one likes the person, you know, okay. You want your spouse to spend time with you and want to do it. But if they don't want to do it, hopefully, you're not saying, Well, go find somebody else and have fun with them then take your girlfriend out. It's okay. I mean, here's the thing God says, Give, do good, and do it cheerfully. I'm a cheerful giver. I'm someone whose attitudes is in the right place. But you got to start with doing it. Let the cheer catch up, man. That's the next thing God's going to work on in your life is the cheer. <laughs> but is that, is that how you feel? It's what you don't do or what you do do. That's a bad combination of words there. Uh, That makes generosity. And listen very carefully. Our giving, our giving must impact our lifestyle if it's going to break the power of greed. If your your level of giving does not impact your lifestyle, it will never break the power of greed in your life. If you can't feel it because it doesn't make a dent, it's not going to change anything. It's not sacrificial. It's not helping you. It's not going to change and break the power of greed in your life. The best way to do that is to become a percentage giver. I've been preaching this all my life. Percentage giving is the most fair and generous way to give because it's a percentage. And if you make less than someone else, well, your percentage of giving is less. And if you make more, your percentage is more too. It's the most fair thing. Michelle and I have always been percentage givers. Since we were teenagers, before we were together, we both earned some set income. We gave, we, we, we were raised in a church culture where we saw the Bible talk about a 10% giving, so we gave 10%. And then we got married, and we decided as a young couple together, from that point on throughout our marriage, we're going to give 10%. And we do to this day. We set aside 10% and we give it because it's not ours. It's not ours. We believe in giving that away. And that, I'll be honest with you, 10% when we first got married was a little bit because we didn't make much. And then I'm a pastor now, so I still don't make much. But there was a time before I became a pastor where I worked in a good company. I left a good career behind that I was advancing in to be a pastor. We made some pretty good money for a while. Guess what? We gave 10%. That number, that number changed, but the percentage was the same. And we've always made a practice to give more than 10%. We give a little extra away. We've always supported kids across the world through World Vision and Compassion International. We do things our, our, on top of that with our annual church giving projects that are special. And on top of that, we give extra um, to to needs that come up when God puts it on our hearts. But we set 10% aside, and our 10% for us, since we were teenagers and young adults first married, our 10% has always gone to our local church. And the reason why is because we believe in the local church. We believe the local church is a place where people are helped spiritually, brought to Jesus, brought the hope of the gospel, and also does good in the community. So And we believe if a bunch of people come to the church and they believe in that church enough to come and they all do their giving charitably through that charity, through that body, that together our synergy can make a difference, our synergy together can make a difference and make it viable, and we've always just bought into that. And beyond that, we do other things. But percentage giving is the most fair and honest way to challenge our, see, that seems like so much. It always will seem like so much. Well, not if I'm rich. Yes, it will. Because the number gets staggering if you're rich. 10% is a staggering number if you're rich. It's always so much to give 10%. But, but don't pick 10, pick 5, whatever. And by the way, give where you're going to give. Just give it away. In fact, we've always said the, a good philosophy is give 10%, save 10%, and live on the rest. Give 10%, save 10%, live on the rest. And you could give more, you could save more. But you should at least give and save that much. But here's the thought. Here's the thought. Um, you won't get more generous someday. People say weird stuff as a pastor, I've heard it all my whole life. Well, Arlen, once I win the lottery, I'm going to give half of it away to people in need. No, you won't. First of all, the way the government would tax your riches, you'd have to borrow money to have half of it left to give away, you know? That's not going to work. But second of all, here's here's the honest truth. National studies have shown us that the more income people make, the smaller their percentage of giving goes. Because the more they make, that number feels bigger. So the percentage shrinks as it feels like so much. We don't give more away than we do now. Nathan said to me between services after I said this first hour, he pointed out the Bible verse where Jesus said, to whom, uh, if you're faithful in little, you'll be, faithful with, you'll be faithful, with, faithful with a whole lot. But if you're not faithful with a little, you won't be faithful with a whole lot either. It's a good point. It's what Jesus is saying here. It doesn't like magically get better if I have more. You're either generous poor or generous rich or greedy poor, greedy rich. Either way, it's either the assumption that it's all for my consumption or it's saying part of what I have is for somebody else. So four questions to take home with you before we wrap this baby up today. Four questions, write these down, study these, take them home with you. First one is this, what do I have? Now this question, what do I have, is not meant to, to say, do you know how much this is in your bank account? Although I believe you ought to be diligent to know the state of your affairs. That's a good idea. What I mean by what do I have is this. The question we usually ask ourselves is, What don't I have? Right? What don't I have? I don't have as nice of a house as the people who work with me. I don't have as nice of a car as my neighbors have. My kids are upset because they don't have as nice of a phone gadget as their friends have. I don't have as nice of this or as nice do that. What don't, what don't I have? What don't I have? And I want to say the first thing to do is ask yourself, What do you have? What do I have? A consumer-driven culture keeps us focused on what we don't have, which fuels discontent and ultimately greed. Can I suggest something to all of us today? We have a lot. And the reason we don't think so is because we're around a lot of other people who have a lot, and they have more of a lot than we have. We have less of a lot. But you know how it's very fashionable in our country to hate on the one percenters. Those greedy one-percenters, they're so rich, it's disgusting. And boy, some of that is is, is 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 true. They get out of paying taxes and they're, they're so wealthy and they hate those one-percenters. Do you realize that in a world of 8 billion people across the globe in, in poverty in many countries, if you live in America today at our standard of living, we are almost one-percenters. We're definitely top three-percenters, almost one-percenters, two-percenters in the world. It's kind of silly for one or two percenters of the world's economy to hate the one percenters amongst them. And I ask ourselves, what about me to people in need? Like, how dare someone have way more than I have because I could always use more. But if you live on a dirt floor somewhere and don't have clean drinking water within, a, within 10 miles, that's not my problem. Right? Because we look at what we don't have when the, amongst the rich who are richer than the poor around the world. But what do I have? Start with what you have. Next question is this. Where did it come from? Where did it come from? Where, why am I so privileged? Why did I win the geographical lottery and was born here? Why did I? Why did I get what I have? Where did it come from? David, King David, in the Bible, who by the way was once a fugitive and a poor guy, then he became a wealthy, powerful king. As a king, David once prayed this prayer in 1 Chronicles twenty-nine, eleven. He said, "Lord, yours, O Lord, is the greatness." The power, the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord. And this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. David was saying, God, it all is yours. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours. It came from you. If it happened to be entrusted to my care for a little while, during my short life or a part of my life, that that was from you because it all is yours. It came from you. It belongs to you. It's going back one day. It's all yours. That's a great mindset to have for all of us today when we sit there saying, get off my lawn. Stay out of my business. Don't preach about my money. You know, where did it come from? Next question. Why do I have so much? Again, you do, we do, in the world's economy. Why? Do I have so much because I'm better than other people? Because, oh well, I want to pass on a thought to you. We are not owners. It came from God. We're not owners. We're managers. And this life will be over and it's not coming with us afterwards. We're just managers. And Paul, the apostle, said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 2, he says, Now a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. We're managers. Why do I have so much? By the way, Some people get to manage more than others get to manage. Some people in this room, you get to manage more. You don't, it's not yours, it's not mine. Some of us get to manage more than others around us, and some of us get to manage less in our lives than those around us. And listen carefully, this is important. We should not feel guilty if we have more to manage, or we should not feel resentful if we have less. That's not the point. We're not owners anyhow. What do I have? Where did it come from? Why do I have so much? We should not be guilt, feel guilty. We should not feel resentful. We should feel responsible. Responsible. The fourth question we should ask ourselves is this. What am I supposed to do with it? What am I supposed to do with it? God, if it's yours anyhow, if it came from you, I have much more than much of the world. If I came from you, why do I have so much? What is, it, what is it I'm supposed to do? God, what are your goals? That's what a financial manager, if some of you have enough money to have a financial planner or a manager that you go to and talk to that handles your future plans, something you'll know about your financial manager is this. It's not their money, that, it's your money that they're working with. If you were to send your financial manager a check and you forgot to send your instructions with the check, and they open the envelope and there's a check from you with no instructions, they would not say, oh good, (laughs) Hawaii, here I come. They would say, call you on the phone and say, hey, what do you want me to do with this? Because it's yours. What are your goals? It's your money. They're just handling it. And if we believe that God gives us what we have, it came from him, it belongs to him, it's entrusted to us to manage, we don't feel guilty, we don't feel resentful, we feel responsible, We ask ourselves this question, God, what are your goals for what you've entrusted to my care? What are your goals for what you entrusted to my care? And I want to be responsible as a manager. Now today, you might be sitting back saying, well, I hope, hope they got this one, preacher. Hope those people that needed this one, because that's not, we're not greedy, thankfully, it's somebody else's sermon, I know. But here's the thing. If you're struggling, if, if if any part of what I'm preaching today rubs up against part of you and you get your defense guards up and you bristle, here's what I want to challenge you to think about. Why? Why does this cause you to bristle? Why does this cause us to get defensive? What is that part that God's poking at? What's that part of our life that's unhealthy emotionally? We're talking about living debt-free. Living debt-free. And I believe that just like with confession and forgiveness, so with generosity, it is your emotional freedom we're dealing with. It is your spiritual freedom. It is your soul being set free from the bondage of the weight that pulls it down and buries it under greed. And we got to find a way to live debt-free. I don't owe me. God's been good. And I find emotional freedom. And I'm going to ask you today, Just trust God, not worry, not need, not greed, but faith. Let's pray. God, we're getting ready to do something extra here in the service, but before we do, I pray that all of us would take this home today and grab a hold of what it means to us. Somewhere in this room, I just pray that maybe we ask ourselves, God, why is is this a, a subject that I either zone out or I bristle up or whatever. Help us to ask ourselves, God, what is going on in our lives? Do we assume that it's all there for us to consume? Point it out to us. Help us, Lord, to, to do the right things, to save the plan, to be responsible, to, to, be de- to be financially debt-free and not living in credit card debt and all that kind of stuff. But help us, Lord, to, to not save or spend at the, at, 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 and refuse to give. Help us to believe that part of what you've given to us is for people who are worse off than us, is for causes that are bigger than us. Help us, Lord, to be a part a part of what you're doing. Thank you for the chance to gather today to be reminded of this important virtue, to find freedom in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.